right, it's going to be that kind of a day. All right. We can roll with that. Hey, if you uh, helped out with the parking lot sale, either you helped prior to or you are here those couple of days or you helped clean up, I want to give a, a great big thank you to you all. Um, it's a lot of work, and so thanks for coming and helping. If you're interested, the parking lot sale takes in uh, a couple of thousand dollars, and um, we put that towards the building fund. Um, and let me just give you a quick update on where we're at with um, the building fund. And most of you know we had a little bit to pay off uh, on this building that we're in this morning. And, and so we're about $100,000, and then we're going to have this paid off. Um, and so if you could be in prayer about that, and um, we're hoping that, uh, praying that um, maybe next year, uh, sometime next year, we can get started with phase two of uh, the project. So that's a little bit of an update for you. Today we're going to talk about uh, the church and how more, uh, now more than ever, we need to be a people that our culture, our society can see and hear from us who Jesus is. We're going to look at the first 21 verses in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, there and... Um, uh, I'm going to read uh, those verses here in a moment for you. Uh, you know, since COVID has permeated our culture and has really taken a huge toll on the things that we do and the things that we don't do, it, it's not a secret that church uh, attendance post-COVID is not what it was pre-COVID. And according to data collected by the Barna Group, one in three practicing Christians dropped out of church completely during COVID-19. Uh, the AP broke a story about how many houses of worship in the United States were closed forever due to the pandemic. Uh, that being said, the church membership in the United States dropped below 50% for the first time in 2020, according to a Gallup poll uh, that dates back to 1940. The American Family Survey suggests that religious attendance has declined significantly in the past two years. Uh, the, the share of, of regular churchgoers is down by six percentage points. And so my point is this is that the church, and when I say the church, I mean church universal. When I talk about our church, I'll specifically say our church, but the church universal has a problem. And we're finding it difficult to attract and keep new people. And here at NCF, it's probably no different. Not only is it hard to keep in, uh, new people, we haven't seen a lot of the people that went to our church pre-COVID come back. So, so on average, our church is down about 40 to 50 people each week. Which is weird because attending church is easier today than it ever has been before. In, in this country, you will not be arrested or executed for attending church. Most likely, it won't hurt your career. And in fact, in many cases, it may help. Our church is comfortable. We have air conditioning. We have a sound system for everybody to hear easily. Our worship is super good. Our chairs are cushioned. Our servant service doesn't last, you know, a million hours. I used a million on purpose. You would think that with these changes, 
Because years ago, churches didn't have any of those things. And you would think that our attendance today would be better than 50 years ago. But the fact is, when you compare percentages of church membership to general population, the church is smaller today than it was 50 years ago. When I look at the early church in the book of Acts, I don't see that problem. The early church changed the course of human history in spite of having no resources, having no buildings, no seminaries, no air conditioning. And it happened because the early church had certain qualities that caused it to prosper even in the midst of difficulties. These elements of the church can be seen as we take a look at the story of the birth of the church in the second chapter of Acts. So I'm going to read this story to you this morning. I know 21 verses is a lot, but bear with me. And I'll just say up front, I'm going to butcher all the places as we go, so just roll with it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And the divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And and now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying... Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The Parinthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, the Cretans and the Arabians, or Arabians. All right, we made it through. Let's just power on now. Right, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the others mocking say they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on the male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Story of Acts 2, I think, gives us four characteristics of the early church, which I think the church of today should strive to do more than ever. 
So if you have your note sheets, go ahead and take them out. You can follow along with me. Now more than ever, the church of today, we need to allow an atmosphere in which God is free to move. When, when you read the first few verses of Acts chapter 2, what usually jumps out, which usually gets our attention, is verses 2 through 4, right? The, the, the mighty rushing winds and the flames of fire and, and the speaking in tongues and all of that stuff. In reality, I think verse 1 is pretty key. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Day of Pentecost was this Jewish feast held 50 days after Passover. It celebrated the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And in the Old Testament day of Pentecost, Israel received the law. The New Testament day of Pentecost, the church receives the Holy Spirit. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was 10 days after the time Jesus ascended to heaven Jesus commanded them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit I gotta think about that and you know the disciples were not strangers to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit the, the disciples saw the Holy Spirit continually at work in the ministry of Jesus the disciples experienced something of the power of the Holy Spirit as they stepped out and they served God in Luke chapter 10. The disciples heard the promise, a new coming work of the Holy Spirit in John 14. The disciples received the Holy Spirit in a new way after Jesus finishes his work on the cross and instituted the new covenant in his blood in John 20. The disciples heard Jesus command them to wait for our promised baptism of the Holy Spirit that would empower them to be witnesses in Acts chapter 1. So they were all gathered in one place. They were gathered together with the same heart, the same love for God, the same trust in his promise, the same geography. And, and the followers of Jesus had cultivated an atmosphere in which God was free to move. And they did it in two ways. The first way was they were obedient to his word. The followers of Jesus were all together in one place because uh, of the word that he had given them just before the ascension. He said in Acts 1, verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So, so Jesus knew that they really couldn't do anything effective for the kingdom of God until the Spirit came. So I got to think about this whole idea of waiting, to wait. I think to wait means that you're waiting for something worth waiting for. To, to wait means that they had a promise and it would come. To wait means that they must receive it. They couldn't create it themselves. To wait means that they would be tested by waiting. So, so then I got to thinking, well, what word have we received as a church that we need to obey? Well, God has commanded us as a church, what? To preach the gospel. He's commanded us to feed the hungry, visit the sick, clothe the unclothed. He has given to us his perfect word in the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the early church created this atmosphere in which God was free to move because they were committed to obeying the word of Christ. And then they also 
demonstrated faith in his promise. They were waiting together because they believed Jesus would fulfill the promise he made a few days earlier when he said in Acts 1.5 and then verse 8, in Acts 1.5 he said, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Side note, this is another example of how the fact of the Trinity Right, that there is one God in three persons is woven in the fabric of the New Testament. Here we see that Jesus told the promise of the Father, which is coming uh, uh, of the Holy Spirit. And so they knew that this promise of the Father would come. It would be days from now, but not many days. Jesus had a purpose in not telling them exactly when it would come. And then drop down to verse 8, Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, uh, that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And notice here that that's not really a command, right? It, it was a, just a simple statement of fact. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses of me. The, the, the words there shall be or will be are in the indicative, not the imperative, which means that Jesus didn't recommend that they become witnesses, right? He said that they would be witnesses. And so if you're going to be a witness, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, like you can have the best evangelism training program on the face of the planet, but it will not be effective without the filling of the Holy Spirit. God wanted a witness sent to all of these places. And the Holy Spirit would empower them to do this work. So, so no wonder they're waiting together, right? Like nobody wants to miss out on the promise of Jesus. They knew whatever was about to happen was going to be important. And they wanted to be a part of that. I wonder if we here at New Creation Fellowship have that same excitement. I wonder if we want to be a part of what God is doing in 2022. Do we want to, to see a powerful move of God in our church? Just questions, let it marinate for a little bit. Second characteristic in Acts chapter 2 that we see that we need now more than ever in our church is that's to grab the attention of outsiders. Repeatedly through the book of Acts, we see the church was too powerful to be ignored. Yeah, that was the case on the day of Pentecost. The sound of the wind and, and the flames of fire and the crowd that was at the house there where all of this was taking place, they were amazed to hear the disciples speaking in different languages. The coming and the filling of the Holy Spirit was so good, so essential for the work of the community of early Christians that Jesus actually said this. He actually said, it is better for me to leave this earth bodily so that he could send the Holy Spirit in John 16. So what's this filling of the Holy Spirit and the whole speaking tongue. I mean, what is that all about? And I realize that this is pretty controversial and uh, I'm going to give you my take and, and as always, you can take it or leave it, right? But here we go. To understand this phenomenon, I think it's necessary to answer four questions. So first, did the disciples speak in a foreign language or did they speak in a language they knew but the hearers heard it in their own language? 
And so judging from the basic form of the verb to speak, in Acts 2.4, the disciples spoke in other languages. In addition, the audience didn't receive like a special capacity from the Spirit to understand the language spoken by the disciples because they spoke in, in a language that the audience knew. Second, was it a foreign language or ecstatic speech? So more than likely, it was an earthly foreign language not learned formally by the disciples. In Acts 2, verse 6 and verse 8, the word language is the Greek word dialectos, which means the language of a nation or region, right? So this is not uh, an ecstatic utterance. Plus the list of 15 ethnic regions in verses 7 through 11 suggests foreign languages there. Third, was a, what was the purpose of the phenomenon? Well, in Acts, speaking in tongues was a sign indicating the beginning of a new era of God's timetable of redemption. And then fourthly, speaking tongues a normative experience for all believers or a unique phenomenon related to the birth and growth of the early church. I just think that the evidence supports the second statement. The the phenomenon is mentioned explicitly only three times in Acts. Amongst the Jewish people in Acts 2-4, amongst the Gentiles in Acts 10, and then uh, amongst the disciples of John in, in 19 verse 6. And you see it in, with the Samaritans in Acts 8 and, and Paul in Acts 9 where they may have spoken in, in tongues after they received the Spirit, but it's not stated, so we don't know for sure. So, so in reporting dozens of other conversion experiences, Luke does not mention speaking in tongues. Furthermore, none of the major characters in Acts command or instruct others on how or whether they should speak in tongues which is not the case for other practices. For example, in Acts, for example, uh, baptism, which was explained specifically and thoroughly. So this supports the idea that Luke did not intend speaking in tongues to be understood as a normative or binding upon the church going forward. Instead, Acts records what did happen, not what should happen consistently. So the phenomenon of tongues, like many of the experience in Acts, is, I think, a unique event, indicating the beginning uh, of an era of the Spirit has come to empower believers to take the gospel to all nations. And so when this happened, they realized that this was something pretty cool, right? Like, this is crazy stuff. And many of them were intrigued, looked at, at verses 7 and 8, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking uh, Galileans, and how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Verse 12, drop down to verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And with all of this going on, people couldn't help but notice, right? When the community sees a miraculous, it, that changes people's lives, and when they hear the testimony of believers, they will not be able to resist the temptation of taking a closer look. And of course, anytime you objectively look at the claims of Christ, there is only one conclusion. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and has the power to change your life. Here's the thing. Not everyone will look at the church objectively. Right there, there are those, even in the presence of the miraculous, that will be cynical. Look at verse 13. But the others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So as the crowd witnessed all that was going on the day of Pentecost, their reaction was either amazement or amusement. 
right? Either way, they could not ignore what was happening. When when I was a kid, I used to watch Monday Night Football because it was the only night football was on. Now we can watch like four nights a week. My wife's super happy about that. So on Monday Night Football, back in the day, there was this dude, the announcer, Howard Cosell, right? If you don't know that name, you can Google it. Those of you that are younger, right? And they did a survey about Howard Cosell, and he was voted the most loved and the most hated sportscaster in the same survey. It was because his personality was so overbearing that you either loved him or you hated him. But he made it very difficult for you to ignore him. That's how the world must react to Jesus, right? Jesus said, who is not for me is against me. He also said, who is not against me is for me. He made it perfectly clear that you cannot ride the fence concerning your relationship with him. There is no neutral ground. As the world examines the church, their reaction to us will be the same. Either they will join us or they will ridicule us, but hopefully they will not be able to ignore us. Not if we're being the church that God has intended us to be. All right, now more than ever, number three, we need to open our doors to non-believers. One of the criticisms of the church over the years has been it's acted more like a country club than the body of Christ. In the early days of the church, there were those who didn't want to allow the Gentiles into the fellowship. In the Middle Ages during the Reformation, Luther, in fact, had just like a horrible view of, the, of Jewish people, right? He basically wanted to strip them of all they had. The, the church in America over the years has made people uh, of different races feel uncomfortable. And, of course, the church hasn't excluded people due to race only, but people have made to feel far less than because of age or gender or economic status. And when Peter spoke to the crowd on the day of Pentecost, he made it clear that this miraculous event was representative of God's intention to include everyone in the fellowship of the church. Whereas in Judaism, there were distinctions in status of Jews and Gentiles. Peter made it clear that in the church of Christ, those distinctions would be gone. Peter said there is no room in Christ's church for race discrimination. And in the midst of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit among the signs and wonders, what did Peter do? He essentially said, let's have a Bible study here. Let's look at the prophet Joel and what he wrote. In the first part of verse 17, it says, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on what? All flesh. At the time of Christ, Jews were considered to be God's people and the Gentiles were considered to be separated from God. Like Jewish men would actually pray this. They would actually pray, Lord, thank you that I was born not a woman or a Gentile. Like that was their prayer. The Jews had no use for Gentiles at all. And some even went as far as saying that they wouldn't help a Gentile woman give birth because it would only bring another Gentile into the world. I mean, that's bad stuff. Second part of verse 17, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Here's the words, direct quote from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 here. Let me be very clear. In the New Testament, women played a critical role 
and establishment of several congregation, congregations and were identified as fellow workers by the Apostle Paul. Paul even gave instructions on how women should dress when praying and prophesying in the church. I don't have time to really take a deep dive into this, but let me say this. The scriptures make it clear that women are to be actively involved in the ministry of the church. And I want to say we have a pretty active women's ministry in our church, which I'm thankful for. Last part of verse 17, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. We're trying to figure out which category I'm in. All right, I know, I'm the old guy. My, my point here is that we need both the younger generation and the older generation in our church, right? I'm just saying now that I'm a part of the older generation, I still think that, that, that we have the ability to make a contribution to the kingdom of God. Our church needs the wisdom of the older generation. At the same time, I will never want to make the mistake of referring to young people as the church of tomorrow. Because I think Peter is saying that they're what? They're the church of today. Right? Today they will see visions. Every person in our congregation, no matter how old or how young, has a role to play. And we need each other. We need every single one of you. Just had a meeting uh, with our guys about men's ministry this past week. And one of the main points that we're talking about, one of the main things that we're trying to, to, to really get a handle on is, is how can we minister to and mentor? How can we reap the benefit of the young men in our church? And I'm excited to see what God's gonna do. All right, last one. Now more than another, we need to proclaim the message of salvation. Verse 21 says, and it shall come to pass to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter also uses a passage from Joel to, an, to, to promote this idea of, of evangelism. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit meant that God now offered salvation in, in a way previously unknown to whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Peter closes out the sermon. People ask him, well, what shall we do? Well, drop down to verse 38. He says, and Peter said to him, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit first thing that Peter tells him to do is to repent you know what that means to repent doesn't mean that that I feel sorry for whatever it is that I have done it, it means to change your mind it means to go the other direction they had thought a certain way about Jesus before concerning him worthy of crucifixion now they must turn their thinking around and embrace him as Lord and Messiah the second thing that Peter said that they must do is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which was an expression of their belief and their complete trust in him. If I've repented and Jesus is Lord and Messiah, I would love to encourage you to be baptized. Later this month, Worship of the Cross, we're going to have a baptism, contact church office, and we'd love to get you ready to go for that. So as they repented and demonstrated faith by, and obedience by baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them. Verse 39, Peter also specifically said that the promise of the Holy Spirit would be given to those who believe in all future generations. And this is why it is crucial now more than ever that the church be faithful to preach the gospel message. It's our mission. If we're not seeing people come to Christ, we're not doing our job. It's just that simple. 
my challenge to you today is to ask ourselves collectively as New Creation Fellowship, how are we doing compared to the early church? Do we cultivate an atmosphere where God's free to move? Do we grab the attention of outsiders? Do we open our doors to non-believers? Do we preach the gospel message? To the extent that we accomplish those things will determine how effective we are. The early church was more than just a country club. They were God's people committed to doing God's work. And guess what? They changed the course of history. Let's be like the church, like it was when it came to existence on the day of Pentecost. And so dare I say this morning, let's be a Pentecostal church. (laughs) Only in the sense that we're like the church of Acts chapter 2, amen? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word today. God, we gather this morning as the church body to to be the church that you want us to be, God. And and so, God, if we need to repent from our sin, we we do that today. And, God, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that you remember our sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, you bury it in the deepest sea. God, thank you for your forgiveness and your healing. Maybe you're here today and you just need to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you just need to commit to being the church because you are the church. Maybe you're here today and you need to receive Christ for the very first time. If that's true for you, you can follow along with prayer. Go something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask you for your forgiveness. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the dead. And I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life today. God, thank you. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross for our sin. It's in Jesus' name I pray.